Hello, I'm Aaron Whiteman. And I'm Adam Wilde. We're your hosts and co-directors of the Cornell Maple Program. You're listening to Sweet Talk, all things maple. Welcome back to Sweet Talk. Today our guest is Dr. Mike Farrell, CEO of the Forest Farmers. Prior to his role as co-founder and CEO of the Forest Farmers, Mike Farrell actually served in my role as director of Cornell University's Eline Maple Research Forest. Mike took a few minutes at the beginning of sap season to stop by the Eline Sugar House and tell us a little bit about what he's up to at the Forest Farmers and to give his perspective on the maple industry. Mike, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about the Forest Farmers? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Adam. Uh, glad to be back. And um, yeah, we uh, uh, we started the Forest Farmers uh, five years ago. I was um, just kind of a side project I was working on for a couple of years while I was still running the facility here. But then uh, things picked up and it got to be a much bigger project than I envisioned. And and so I made a difficult decision to to give up, which was such a such a great position here and, you know, the work that that you do and you know this facility is it's uh, really a great thing but uh you know it was also pretty exciting to be able to you know start my own company with two great business partners and um so we purchased 10,000 acres of forest land in uh, Lion Mountain New York and Marshfield Vermont and so now we have two pretty large facilities where we do a lot of maple syrup of course but we also focus on uh, all the other trees that you can get um syrup from the birch beech walnut so that's what we've been up to. Great. So what's the size of your, your operation? In New York, Lion Mountain, we have close to 7,000 acres. And this past year, we have 106,000 maple taps. And in Vermont, it's close to 3,000 acres that we own or lease. And that's 46,000 taps this year. Oh, wow. So, so not a small operation. So we're, we're recording this on, on March 5th. Um, so we're, we're coming into the sugaring season. Have you do you have all your taps in now? Have you started producing at all? Yeah, we uh, we started tapping uh, beginning of January and finished up right before the uh, first runs we had over the past weekend. The sugar content was low, but the uh, the syrup wound up being delicious. So hopefully the sugar content comes up for the rest of the season. You know, we're all set and ready. We got most of our leaks taken care of and just looking forward to the warm weather. It's coming hopefully next week. Great. With 106,000 taps in your New York facility, when do you start actually tapping all those trees? We had one crew start December 28th that week, and then another crew came in the middle of January. So we had a total of 18 guys on and off throughout that time period. Most of them were full-time, but some of them um, didn't make it every day. Oh, wow. So starting end of December, that's a, leaving a tap hole open for quite a while. Are there challenges that you find? Are you are you noticing by the end of the sap season that your tap holes are shutting down? Especially those tap holes that you opened up in December, tapped in December. Are they not running as well as the ones your last ones you put in at the end of February? Uh, well, this will be the first year I'll be able to probably answer that for you because um, we tapped the one sugar bush you know, got tapped much earlier than the, than the rest of it, but they were still all tapped. And, and during a cold spell, we didn't really have any warm weather enough for the sap to run um, throughout January and February. So uh, weather was tapped um, December 28th or February 26th. 
there probably is a difference. I, I, it'd be nice to know what that would be on the scale we're doing. I can't answer that question from our data this year. We have flow meters that are actually working this year. We, we, we've had challenges with them in the past year, so I haven't been able to collect that data. But this year our flow meters are working. So we'll be able to track that by sugar bushes, you know, every time that the releaser pumps out, it tells us how many gallons of sap is coming in. So we will be able to look at trends, um, at least macro scale between, uh, we have two major sugar bushes. One has 36,000 taps and the other has 70,000. And so the 36,000 tap bush was, we were done tapping that by January 20th. And so the other one, you know, we started tapping the middle of January and finished up February 26th. Okay. Yeah. So I think there'll be a, maybe a general trend we can look at from that, but um, like the work you do here at Eline, where you can do individual trees, you can do little small clumps, you can really get down to some really granular data and, and do a lot of replications. That's really valuable. I would trust that data more than just kind of macro scale. Yeah, it's. I'm sure it's hard on a a large scale to. You know, because some of it just could be site differences, topography, you know, slope aspects of the flow by the end of the season to really pick all those little details out. And as you said, in a, in a 70,000 taps, there's a lot, a lot of things happening. There's a lot of variability. There. Yeah. I can say what the, the main thing we do to try to extend the season is um, we use either brand new or washed drop lines every year. We have a removable drop line that uh, CDL made a, a T fitting that has the, the quick disconnect as part of the T. And so we can take those drop lines off, tap off the T's in the off season, and then we can do a really good wash on those drop lines with chlorine with a good contact time, put a new spout on. And so it's as close as you can get to a new drop line. So sometimes they're new drop lines or sometimes they're really well cleaned um, ones. So that's, that's what we do, just knowing that those tap holes are going to be in. A lot of them two months before the sap start running. You know, we want to extend the season as much as we can. So you are doing some sanitation work to ensure that, you know, there's those long open tap holes are hopefully going to be flowing with either a sanitized or new drop line. That Yeah. That's a, do you have any data that has proven that that's helpful or is that more anecdotal or based on other well, that's based on previous research just looking at um drop line cleaning or new drop there's been you know a lot of research looking at what's going to be your best most cost effective strategy yeah you know and for us we thought that the removable drop line would be the most cost effective way on our scale to uh get as clean a drop line and new spout into the tree every year at the at the least cost and hassle yeah are you changing out those spouts each year or are you sanitizing the spouts? Uh, new spout every year. Okay. You touched on uh, one piece that's changed for you a lot, having to, to manage more people. Is that one of your biggest struggles that you have? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's, uh, that's the essence of management is that you don't, you know, when you have 30 some odd people, it doesn't really matter what you do. It matters how well you can inspire and motivate and manage and get the best out of the 30 people that are working for you. So that's what I focus all of my efforts on is, is you know, basically assisting the team and trying to get them as well-trained um, and organized and managed and motivated to do a great job. You, you mentioned before, you know, in, in the beginning that you were, you guys are focusing on, you know, tapping more than just maple, but also doing walnut and birch and beech. And so 
Why do you find that important for your operation to diversify beyond just maple? And what are some of the you know advantages or disadvantages that come with having more species? Well, there's you know there's pros and cons. From the the advantage standpoint, we spent significant investment to buy the land and build the facilities and get everything built out to do maple syrup. And it's not that much extra investment on a relative basis to also put in the tubing to do birch and beech and walnut from, you know, the trees growing on that same property. So we can spread out that pretty significant fixed investment over multiple products. Uh, so so that's that's probably the biggest pro. Also from a labor perspective, when we're hiring people, they generally want steady work and it's hard to just bring in people seasonally for short periods. So with doing different species, the sap flow is spread out over the course of the spring. It also spreads out our labor allocation. So people start tapping generally maple. January and February, you'd be doing all your repair work, leak fixing on the maple in, in March. And then in April, your leak should be done, fixed. Maybe you're still doing a few here and there when they come up, but then you start tapping uh, well, in mid to late March, you start tapping the beach, and then in early to mid-April is when you're tapping uh, the birch. And so it allows for a continuous, steady, steady flow of the workload for you know a large crew that wants steady work throughout those months. I would say the con, the biggest con on it is, uh, um, you know, there's a, the expression, you can't wait for sugaring season to get here, and then you can't wait for it to end. So true. And so from a, a management perspective, like, you know, the managers don't mind having a little break here and there <laughs> during the season because um, we're working well, well over 40 hours. And so it just adds to the overall workload, you know, which is good from, from one perspective in that you're able to keep people with a steady, say, 40 hours a week because that's what they're looking for. But it just, um, the extra complexity, um, you know, there's cost to complexity. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely... Uh, it can be tiring. Is it from a you know a personnel standpoint? Is there issues with training and keeping everybody engaged and going from season to season? Do people seem you know getting wore out? And uh, yeah, there's a. I mean, it's a. It's a. Yeah, people are tired and probably not that interested in going to tap more trees at the end of <laughs> April season. But then again, that's their job. That's yeah. what they do want the job. Yeah, and it's easier to walk in the woods that time of the year, right? <laughs> Much easier. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> No bugs yet. So tapping birch can be uh, one of the better jobs for sure. Yeah, I found that it's kind of a relief that you usually don't have any snow on the ground and it's nice to be out there again and makes it a lot easier than when you're tapping maples trying to wade through four feet of snow. Right? The, Definitely. It's been a tough winter out there in snowshoes this year. Yes. From a From a marketing standpoint, do you have challenges with trying to educate consumers on those other products or is it hard selling, you know, other things or? Um, well, the price is much higher, uh, of course, on the other types of syrups and maple. So it limits some of the options of where you can sell. Like mm-hmm. You're not going to sell a lot of pure birch syrup in a grocery store. Yeah. You know, it's just going to be too high a price point. But people are, are, you know, as as you've seen from, you know, selling birch syrup here, you know, people are really intrigued by the fact that you can get syrup from other trees and they want to taste it. I'd say the bigger challenge is getting people to be creative and using it. People always want to buy it and have it or give it away as a gift. But then 
getting them to use it so that they use it up and then buy more, you know? Um, it's something like, oh, I love, oh, that's interesting. Berkshire, why should get some? Yeah. But then it probably sits in their shelves. Yeah. You know, because they don't really know how to use it. Yeah, I'd say the, the opportunity is that people are intrigued by it. They want to buy it initially. But to get repeat sales, we got to get people to, to really start using it. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree that that's certainly an issue with the Birch sometimes is giving them ideas of how to use it and what it's used for. And I also speculate that a lot of times that it is just sitting on their shelf somewhere. Um, and is it really being used? Right. Yeah, we've gotten some chefs that are using it. And that's, that's the best way because they're, they're buying it to use it. And they yep. use it constantly and they're reordering because they're, it's on their menu. Yeah. So, so speaking of that, you know, what is your your marketing kind of strategy or diversification of, you know, are you selling all retail, wholesale? Are you selling bulk? Well, yeah, we have a, a mix. Um, you know, when you have that much syrup to sell, you have a wide variety of outlets. So yeah. we haven't sold a lot bulk. We've been focused mostly on uh, on the ingredient market for other products that are using maple syrup. So we sell some in, definitely in bulk, but not necessarily to another like uh, Bascom's or butternut, or not another maple syrup packer. And uh, this past year, we purchased Parker's Real Maple brand. I was started by Joshua Parker seven years ago, and he's a young, great guy who started the business, grew it, and uh, it made sense that uh, eventually he was looking for a partnership. And uh, so we we took on the brand, and now Joshua's our our, our main sales manager and. We sell a lot of our syrup now through that Parker Maple mm, brand. Oh, nice. Which is in Walmart and lots of grocery stores throughout the country. So that created that that market channel for you to, to push your syrup. Yep. And then on our specialty syrups and the different trees, we have uh, the brand New Leaf Tree Syrups, which is um, focused mostly on the different types, the birch, the beech, the walnut, and some of the blends and infusions we're doing. And that's been mostly uh, retail and, and direct-to-consumer. So... You know, with a large operation, I'm sure you pay really close attention to your numbers and costs and everything. Do you think with your operation that if you did sell on the large bulk by the barrel market, that you could still be profitable with current bulk prices, 210 a pound, roughly 215, 220? Uh, not yet. Yeah. It's going to take a long time to pay down the investment and in buying the land and building the buildings and buying all the equipment. So... You know, we amortize that over time, but still there's a lot of startup costs. So, you know, we've been focused on trying to do it, everything as cost effective as possible. But um, with bulk prices at 210, it's for new operations like ours um, that, you know, still have a lot of startup costs. It's it's pretty challenging, mm. you know, and in, myself and my partners, we, I mean, we knew that going in. This is a long term investment. So, you know, we'll be doing this for many, many decades. So eventually that'll all, you know, pay for itself, but it's going to take a long time. For for other producers who are selling primarily bulk, do you have any tips or suggestions for them that would help them be profitable, you know, ways to keep their costs down? Yeah, you have to control cost and increase production, right? <laughs> so that's one of the ways you do that is just by doing things right the first time. Right. So one of the things I stress with my crew is if you tap those trees correctly when you go out tapping, there's not going to be nearly as much leak checking to do. And so your costs are going to go down because you don't have the cost of leak checking and your productivity is going to go up because you'll have a good tap in there right from the start. You have a high vacuum right from the beginning of the season. So just the more you can do things 
correctly, efficiently the first time and um, learn from your mistakes because we're always all making mistakes and just uh, learn from them and fix them and uh, just do the best job you can because, you know, we can't really control bulk price, but you can control, you know, how much effort you put out there. And, you know, it's all about working smart and working hard. Um, and we have to do both. Do you have any predictions on price where you see that going over the next five years? Uh, I would be surprised if it went up, but, you know, we're, we are doing a better job with productivity per tap. There's been a lot of research looking at how do you get more sap out of your trees. More producers are implementing those techniques and technologies. There's more taps going out there. So while maple syrup sales are still increasing, which is tremendous, uh, we also continue to have a high supply and there's still a reserve, a significant reserve at the Federation. So until that reserve is depleted, I don't see you'll see much upward pressure on prices. Going away from price for a little bit, we can come back to that. But you mentioned, you know, gaining production. Do you have an idea roughly of what you think you are producing on average? How many gallons per tap? Yeah, I mean, every year it varies, but um, we have pretty good records on that. It's about four tenths of a gallon of syrup per tap. You know, there's, you know, we hear people saying, you know, striving for, you know, half a gallon or more than that. And do you think those are realistic numbers? What is a, a realistic number that producers really should be targeting? You know, obviously we always want more, right? Yeah, but, right. Um, so I think you can, you can get a half a gallon per tap if you're a large producer. There's many large producers out there who, who are getting a half a gallon tap or more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they need to have really good team members who know what they're doing and care. Yeah. And the larger the producer you are, the bigger the risk that you could lose a lot of money if you don't do well, or the reward if you do really well, you could make significant profit. So um, it is more challenging the bigger you get, but uh, but you have to, I mean, if you're going to do this as a business, you have to really be focused on, on efficiency and, and getting things right. So I do think it's possible for us to get a half a gallon per tap. That's what I, you know, we have bonus metrics in place for the for the crew that they get extra money if we do get to there. Hmm. So, you know, we try to incentivize them to work as, as if it's their own operation because that's uh, people who are doing it for their own livelihood um, and they're not just getting a paycheck whether or not they, you know, you spend eight hours leak checking. If, if you need to fix all those leaks for you to get enough sap to pay the bills, you're going to work a lot harder. And so we, we try to set up a compensation system that really incentivizes the team to, to work as if, as if it's their own operation. Are there two or three key factors that you say are really going to impact production? Well, I would say wait a minute, it starts off with tapping. And so how you drill the hole, where you drill the hole, how you set the spout, what you've done for sanitation to make sure it's a clean tap hole, that sets the stage for the rest of your season. Yeah. And if you've done a good job with that, and then you can able to just keep up on any leaks from squirrel chews or trees coming down or branches or whatever is going to happen over the course of the season, I think, especially on a large scale, a monitoring system is the best investment you can make because it's going to pay for itself many times over and increasing your yields, being more efficient with your labor, knowing where to go. So if you can afford it, I think it's it's the best investment, but it doesn't take any extra money to be really careful and do a really good job tapping. So tap well and keep your vacuum up, right? Pretty basic, yeah. That's where we heard from Dr. Farrell. That's that's what everybody needs to do. So if... If you have any tips or recommendations for a producer who 
is looking to grow, you know, maybe it's not looking to be a hundred thousand taps, but wants to go from 500 to 5,000 or 5,000 to 20,000. Are there any recommendations that you have? Sure. Yeah. I, I think, um, you want to maximize your equipment capacity. So, you know, if you're only boiling for a few hours a day and your RO is not running all the time, obviously you can put more taps through it and get more utilization out of that equipment that you spend a lot of money on. You know, it's not making any money for you sitting there. So expanding up until you're maximizing your current equipment and footprint facility, like if you have to build an addition or if you have to buy new equipment, well, that's a different type of investment calculation. But just making sure to put out enough taps or maybe buy enough sap that you can do a really good job in utilizing your the maximum capacity of your RO and evaporators would be the first first step. And then beyond that, it's you know making sure you have a good business plan and you've been very conservative in your estimates. Always assume that your costs are going to probably be at least 20% higher than you predict. Hmm. Are there areas where a producer can maybe get trapped where they're not quite large enough? You know, is there a, a number of taps or an area of their economies of scale can get kind of caught in between where they need bigger equipment, but they don't have enough taps to really justify Yeah, I think in the, in the low thousands range is, is one of those places where it's, you're probably in the danger zone, where it's beyond a hobby, yeah. but not big enough to be a business. Okay. And there's a lot of producers in that range that have a few thousand taps. It's just a matter of when you're in that range, just controlling your costs because your, your revenues, if you're selling bulk syrup, are, can only be so high. Mm-hmm. If you have 3,000 taps, let's just say on average you might make 1,000 gallons of syrup, hopefully more. But if you made 1,000 gallons of syrup off your 3,000 taps and its bulk price is $25,000 a gallon, you made $25,000, mm-hmm. which might be really good depending on how much cost you have into it. Yeah. So that's why you have to control your costs because you know that your your bulk revenue every year is going to be probably between twenty five and thirty thousand dollars on a three thousand top operation. Yeah, and that's that's not a lot to live off of either. If you've got to be paying for equipment, well, well, and everything, yeah, right? right. If, if you're uh, paying down your equipment and three thousand taps, you shouldn't have to hire anybody. Yeah, so you shouldn't have any labor costs. But it's just a matter of you know it takes you know you figure probably fifteen dollars a tap, fifteen to twenty dollars a tap. Mm-hmm. to put it in just the tubing stuff the infrastructure in the woods between your releaser and your vacuum pump and yeah materials so you know you, you could be looking at 45 to sixty thousand just to put in that part before you even touch the sugar house you know on the, the sugar house and all that yeah. yeah so that's where if you can get a low interest loan and uh, you know be paying for that over time you can definitely cash flow positive but when you're putting a lot of your own money up front to begin with you just have to know it's going to take a long time to pay off what about land? You know, I think for a lot of people who are looking to get into, you know, maple sugaring, you know, new producers who don't have, you know, access to that land or a producer who has land that wants to expand but has maximized out the land that they have. Do you think it's viable to be leasing trees to tap? Oh, yeah. If you can get a good lease, you need to have a long enough lease, though, secure, secured in, with a good lease contract that if the land changes hands, which the average land ownership in New York, I think, is seven years. So you want to make sure that when that land goes to a different owner, that you mm-hmm. can still keep your tubing there. Yeah. Because, um, you know, leasing can be a very cost-effective option, but it becomes really, really expensive if you put in tubing and then you have to take it out before the end of its useful life. So in New York State, 
uh, with the Ag Assessment Clause, uh, I know many producers who pay very little for their lease because the landowners are saving more in their taxes from being able to lease than they are getting from the lease payment. Mm. So they were they were happy to lease out in order to qualify for ag assessment. Mm-hmm. So if you can find a landowner like that and get a good lease term where the, the lease extends to the new owner, and I would recommend at least a 15-year lease period, yeah. then it can be a really, a really good thing to do to uh, increase your 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 tap capacity without making a huge investment in uh, having to buy the land. I know with the the forest farmers, you try to stay away from hauling sap, you know, transporting sap down the road, and by just you know utilizing long pipe networks. But is it viable to haul sap if need be? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, we just, we don't just because if you if you can pump sap, you should. Yeah, because hauling sap is time consuming. It can be expensive if you know, the truck and the trailer and the tank. And then, you know, if something goes wrong and it can be dangerous because you're hauling sap on muddy roads or, you know, or difficult conditions. So, yeah, so at both our facilities, all our sap is pumped directly to the sugar house. And uh, we made a strategic decision to do that and set up where we were in order to, to be able to do that uh, from an efficiency standpoint. But, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of economies of scale in processing sap in a sugar house. So if you can buy in sap or haul in sap from somewhere else and get more use out of your RO and evaporator, that can pay for the extra cost of a truck or tank or trailer and the time to do it pretty quickly. Yeah. So it all comes down to what you have for processing equipment and how much you've utilized what you have. Yeah. So it's a good suggestion that even I know when you were in my position here at the E-Line Forest, you did a lot of estimation and, and calculating out, you know, some tables for buying and selling sap, right? And so that's a, a good way for those producers to utilize more of that equipment if they want to buy in sap or if they don't want to expand, they can sell, right? And still. Yeah. And, and my, my advice to people who want to sell sap is to find a sugar maker who has extra capacity because they're willing to pay more. Yeah. Create that teamwork. Yeah. If they have extra RO capacity or evaporator capacity, then. They can pay you more and still make money themselves, but somebody who's got just a small evaporator, or, or if they don't have an RO, I mean, the, the amount that they can afford to pay for it is not going to be enough for you to make any money selling yeah. it. We've been spending quite a bit of time talking about, you know, larger producers, but I want to step back and, you know, there's a lot of producers throughout New York and other maple producing regions who are not that big of producers. It may only be, you know, a few hundred taps or are a thousand taps or less. What role do you, you know, what role do they play within the maple industry? You know, you're a hundred thousand tap operation, but how do you compare to a hundred tap operation? Well, most days I wish I was a hundred tap operation. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it, uh, you know, there, there's there's a lot more hundred tap producers than you know hundred thousand, and it's uh, it's a great tradition, and so there'll always be lots and lots of producers at that smaller scale who are doing it because they love the process enjoy it, enjoy making a great product. You know, they're not responsible for the syrup on the grocery store shelves, but they're responsible for a lot of the syrup being bought at the farm stands or direct from the sugar house or at the farmer's markets and still have that close relation between the consumer and the producer. Um, And so they're keeping a lot of the the maple tradition alive all over the place. The large producers are, they're still producing the vast majority of the syrup, but and there's a lot of smaller producers out there interacting with the public all the time and teaching them about maple syrup and inviting them to sugar houses and doing a great service to the maple industry that way. Yeah. 
I think maple's a little unique still in that a lot of consumers do still want to go to the sugar house and purchase it there from a farmer's market. And unlike, you know, say, you know, milk, where they're just going to go to the grocery store and buy and not going directly to the farmer, right? So that's, I think maple is unique in that aspect. Do you think that'll change at all? Or No, I, I don't. I think it'll always be that way. I mean, people love maple because it's out in the forest. It's just got a great story. It's got a great history. And, you know, the smell walking in the sugar house, who doesn't love that? Right. So the setting in, in the woods, beautiful maple trees. I mean, it, it's got a lot going for it on, on many different levels. And I'm sure it'll always be a, a strong part of our rural heritage here. Do you think they're, from a branding standpoint, I mean, you're trying to, to create your own retail brand a little bit. Do you think there will be, you know, one or two large maple syrup brands that'll become more popular? Or will it stick to kind of general, just it's pure maple syrup, that's the brand? Yeah, I, I think pure maple syrup is the brand. There's lots of different brands out there. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there's there's many, many, many different brands there. Some of them are regional. Uh, I would say the bigger trend we're seeing though is that uh, more people are buying the the private label from the the store they go to. So you know, there's a lot of maple syrup sold under the Kirkland brand at Costco, huge retailer. Um, so the the private label brands are are gaining more traction because the brand really is pure maple versus the artificial junk. And so whether it's Mike's syrup or Adam's syrup, people don't know or care really. They really want pure maple. You know, as an industry, we're just much better off to, to focus more on the fact that pure maple is the best, not my syrup or your syrup. Do you, you know, we have seen, you know, within New York alone in the last like 15 years, maple syrup production and consumption in theory along with that has quadrupled. Do you predict in the next 10 to 15 years that maybe it won't grow at the same rate, but do you Continue to see that consumption and that growth within maple syrup, the demand for maple. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have uh, started this business if I didn't <laughs> wasn't optimistic about the industry. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, we have a long ways to go to keep on doing it, but uh, you know, we're we're at such a low starting point. I mean, the per capita consumption is so low, and so many people currently don't use it or don't know what to use it for besides just pancakes. That the more People learn about it, and the more they want to switch away from artificial sweeteners and highly processed ones to an all-natural, pure maple. There's so much room for growth. That's why I'm really optimistic. Are there any needs that you see within the, the maple industry, any shortcomings? Uh... Well, I think you know the opportunity is, is also currently the challenge is that we don't have nearly the marketing budget that other food commodities have, and we're more expensive. So we really need to to let consumers know that it is worth the extra money. And so uh, I think I think we really need to invest more in marketing, getting the message out that pure maple is the best sweetener alternative, especially given this war on sugar, which, you know, people are, and companies and food technologists are constantly trying to reduce sugar in foods, trying to reduce sugar in recipes. You know, we definitely have a challenge there. And, and so we need to be, make sure that we're proactive in, letting people know that pure maple is not just like any other sugar, any other sweetener, and that there are health benefits to it. And in moderation, it's, it's good and good for you. So, and even in moderation, you know, the average per capita consumption is four ounces per year. So that's pretty moderate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I use more than that every day, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have a lot of room to grow and we just got to, I think, make sure that we're um, working together as an industry to really get the, the right message out there. Does that marketing, does that come from 
individual producers or does that come from like an association level, like a state association or the IMSI? Or um, It's a mix of, of a lot of things. I mean, on the individual producer level, they're usually marketing their own syrup as, you know, really good. The Canadians always talk about, you know, Canadian maple syrup has this or that uh, because it's Canadian money going into that funding. And like state associations, you know, New York, we talk about New York maple syrup, Vermont about Vermont maple syrup and so on. But it's all maple syrup. And so, it, you know, and, and certainly certain funding sources are going to dictate how you have to talk about it and represent the origin. But there has been quite a bit of investment put in by the Canadians over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. They, they've done a tremendous amount of investment with their, uh, I think it's four cents a pound that goes towards marketing and promotion. It might even went up. I, I can't recall, but... They're definitely investing a lot through the ACER program, some of those marketing grants that came through. There's a lot of investment through that. And I serve as one of the executive vice presidents on the IMSI International Maple Syrup Institute. Uh, we don't have a lot of money, but we have a lot of uh, willpower and um, <laughs> energy to try to uh, get things done. And so, you know, there's there's efforts cross-border that way. Um, but I don't think we're doing enough. I think we definitely could do more and be more strategic and resourceful on how we spend the money. Do you think do you think a lot of consumers are just shopping for price? Definitely. Yeah, and that's why you see the private label sales going much more than any um, branded because they're always the lowest price. Are there are there any new things that you guys are trying out at the the forest farmers, whether it's from a marketing standpoint or things that you're doing in the woods? Um. We're just trying to do the best job we can. <laughs> you know, Aren't we all? Just like everybody. Yeah. yeah. And uh, trying to stay sane through the busy parts and, you know, just really focus on doing things right. Yeah, that's tough getting through the sugaring season, right? Yeah. Well, Mike, thanks for, for stopping by today. I wish you well in the coming season as you progress through, and I hope it's a, a productive year for everybody. Save you. Thanks for uh, having me. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for joining us for Sweet Talk, all things maple with Aaron and Adam. Sweet Talk is produced by the Cornell Maple Program and is made possible from funding from the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. All music was obtained from Blue Dot Sessions. For more information on all things maple, visit cornellmaple.com. Join us next time for more Maple Sweet Talk. Have a sweet day.